I am really excited to look at the book of Nehemiah with you over the next uh, 13 weeks, actually, we're going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open up to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you're, if you're the sort of person who looks on your phone, you might find that faster. If you're flipping through pages, uh, I'll give you a minute to find Nehemiah. Um, if you go past First and Second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, you get to Ezra and then Nehemiah. If you're in Psalms, you've gone too far. But um, I'm going to read Nehemiah chapter 1 for us this morning. These are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, the Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer that your, of your servant that I now pray before you night and day for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your dispersed be under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together. Oh God, this morning as we gather and we see uh, the beauty of this place, God, we are stunned by your glory. The whole earth proclaims, God, that you exist and that you are good. But we need to hear your word to know that you love us. Would you give us ears to hear what spirit you are saying to your people this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm supposed to uh, remind you that uh, there is going to be a sermon Q&A at the end of the sermon. There's a number printed on this sheet of paper, and I have no idea what uh, number that is or where it goes. So... Um, We'll see what happens. <laughs> Vaclav Havel was a playwright, a, a Czech man, uh, 
And during the 1960s and 70s, he became really the chief playwright, the best-known playwright in Czechoslovakia. His country at the time was under the occupation of the uh, communist government, had been uh, really set up as a satellite state of the USSR after having been overrun by Nazis in the midst of World War II. And as a artist and a playwright in the 60s and 70s, Vaclav Havel began to write uh, plays that were increasingly social commentaries on the tyrannous government that ruled his people. In the late 70s, he ran afoul of the communist government and had to flee into the mountains where he lived for several years before being arrested in the 1980s. He was in and out of prison, but spent most of the 80s in prison until 1989 when the USSR began to implode. And literally within one month, Vaclav Havel was taken from prison, uh, from prison and made the president of Czechoslovakia and later the Czech Republic when the two nations uh, went separate ways. And so this playwright turned prisoner, turned uh, politician, turned president was faced with the task of leading his people to rebuild a nation, a society, and a culture that had been decimated by totalitarianism for three generations. And here's the way that Stephen Garber describes Havel's priority in that moment. He understood that after generations of domination of his country by Nazis and communists, unless the Czech people took responsibility for their own future, there would be no future. Coming into this role, leading a country, leading a nation, leading a people, that if you think about it, had really just been victimized for three generations. Every new regime rewriting the history textbooks to tell a slightly different historical narrative in order to justify their power. Vaclav Havel, at the beginning of 1990, realized that he was leading a people to rebuild a society who were profoundly demoralized. What hope could they have for their future? He realized that if they did not learn to take responsibility, though they were victims, there would be no future to take responsibility for. I tell you that story because there is a sense in which that history parallels uh, this story that we're reading in the book of Nehemiah that we're looking at this morning and, and we're going to be looking at over the coming weeks. Um, and it's also, I believe, a story that parallels our own narrative as a church. Did you know that this is a historic morning in the life of the table? This is the second week in a row that we have gathered in person for worship as a church, which is awesome. <laughs> and the fact that we have to say that says a lot about the last 17 months. It's the first time we can say that since March 8th, 2020, 17 months ago. First time we've met two Sundays in a row for worship. And so this morning we're beginning a new series called Rebuild, looking at the book of Nehemiah and uh, the, the word rebuild, I chose that title for this series because it means obviously that there is something that was built that has been de de defaced, damaged, that we now are responsible for rebuilding. But it also means regarding building. 
And, and what that means is that the Christian life ultimately is, is formative in nature. That, that we are about building something together. And we're beginning that process now. And so we find ourselves in a position that parallels the position of Vaclav Havel and the people of the Czech Republic in the early 90s and a situation that parallels that of Nehemiah in 445 BC. And so in order to really explain the context and for you to understand what's going on in the book of Nehemiah that we're going to be looking at, uh, I, I need to give you a little history, and I just realized that this is already the second history lesson and we're still in the introduction, but if you can just give me 90 minutes, uh, 90 seconds rather, 90 seconds, <laughs> that was maybe a Freudian slip. Um, I'm going to give you a very quick overview of the Old Testament so you're going to understand what's happening in Nehemiah 1. If you go back all the way to Genesis 12, it's about 1800 BC. Don't worry about the dates. And God comes to a guy named Abraham and says, Abraham, out of all the people on the planet, I'm picking you. I'm choosing you. And Abraham, I'm going to make you great. And I'm going to give you a a legacy. And people are going to remember who you are forever. And I will be your God and you will be my people. And Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And Abraham, because I bless you, you and your descendants are going to go out and bless the rest of the world. And if you have read any of the Old Testament, you have read the story of God being faithful to that promise and the people of God failing to live up to their end of the uh, bargain. And so at long last, after years of warning and corruption and the politics and worship of God's people, God finally says enough and God sends his people into exile. And if you've read the book of Jeremiah or especially if you've read the book of Daniel, you've read about this uh, this, what happens where in 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes and he utterly demolishes the city of Jerusalem. And he takes the people of God uh, from um, Israel, from their, their you know, historical home, and he takes them about a thousand miles away to Babylon in modern day Iraq. And that happens in 586 BC. And eventually the Babylonian Empire falls to the Persian Empire and Cyrus the Great sent, uh, makes a decree. The, the, um, the Persians were nicer than the Babylonians. And so he allows the, the conquered people to return to their ancestral home. And 50 years later, um, Ezra, the priest, he goes back to Jerusalem to restart the worship of God. But there's no economy and there's no protection, so they're constantly being attacked. And there are all these other people who've settled in the land that don't really want to see God's people regather. And that's where we pick up the story. And 13 years after Ezra the priest arrives to rebuild, to restart the worship of God at the temple in Jerusalem, Nehemiah leads a group of people to rebuild the wall, to rebuild the wall around the city of Jerusalem. His conscience is pricked and God begins to stir in his heart and he leads the people of God to rebuild and to gather after a prolonged period of time in which they were not able to gather for worship in person. Now, let me just ask you, does that sound remotely familiar? I mean, one of the, they don't have walls. They're, they're stuck outside after not being able to gather for worship in person together. Like this is... Not really a stretch here. And so the question I think this book poses to us is very much the same question posed by Václav Havel a generation or two ago. What does the future look like and will we take responsibility for that future?
So look with me at this passage, because the book of Nehemiah lays out what I think is a very clear roadmap to rebuilding as the people of God. Roadmap to rebuilding. So the first thing that we notice as we read this passage is that the first step in rebuilding together is simply to see. We have to begin with reality. Nehemiah begins by paying attention to what's going on in the world around him. Nehemiah, we're going to find out later, is an official in the court of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. And as he's there doing his work one day, it seems like some people come in and they've come from Jerusalem. And Nehemiah says, how are my people doing? And the report is not good. And in verse 3, this is what they tell him. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The people of God haven't been able to gather for worship and they have no walls. The first thing we have to do is simply see, to acknowledge, to live in reality. God's people are in a state of crisis and they are under threat from opposition from the outside and divisions within. Many of God's people have fled There are just not that many of them, and the ones who remain are few and weak and exhausted and demoralized. The walls, why are the walls of the city so significant? In an ancient city, if you don't have walls, you don't have protection. But more than that, it's a constant reminder of the question of, has God forgotten us? God had promised to provide for his people, to protect his people, to give them this this land, this place, and to be in their midst. And every day they are confronted with this question, does God still care about us? Is he still with us? Are we still his people or has he given up on us? Is he even able to deliver us? And if so, why are there so few of us remaining and why are we suffering? And that's the context of Nehemiah. And sometimes it's hard as a pastor to be like, I wonder how this applies to our situation. This is not one of those times. Uh, Because... I mean, you're still here um, after 17, 18 months of a global pandemic that has rocked all of us. But I think in many ways, the Christian church has been hit especially hard over this last time, over this last year and a half. I mean, we all know anecdotally people who we used to go to church with who have left for one reason or other, not all of them bad during the pandemic. Actually, you're looking at one of them. I resigned from the church that we planted <coughs> during the pandemic. Um, we've all seen this happen, but some statistics. The Barna Group does research on trends within uh, Christianity in North America, and they've released some, some statistics over the last several months that are shocking. Uh, according to Barna, the Barna Group, 65% of churches have reached a plateau or, or are in decline. Okay, what is that? That means one-third of churches are healthy and vibrant and growing. One-third. 65% of people who go to church enjoy going to church. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) think about what that means. That means you're sitting here, and there's a person on your right and a person on your left, and one of you wishes that you weren't here this morning. (laughs) According to the Barna Group, they just studied towards the end of 2020, one in three practicing Christians have stopped going to church during the pandemic. That doesn't mean they didn't show up in person. All of us stopped showing up in person for, uh, you know, shorter or longer. One third of practicing Christians have said, I don't go to church anymore in the last 18 months. 
I mean, can you think about how staggering a statistic that is if one in three people just disappeared from anything? And that's in the midst of one of the hardest years of our lifetimes. Worse than that is that half of millennials, people Brad's age, slightly younger than myself, between the ages of 25 and 40, have stopped going to church, engaging with their church. As I talk with friends around the country, as I've heard from many of you over the last two months, two, three months, as we've gotten to know each other, it seems like those who have been in positions of leadership have been especially hard hit during this time. And as we've gone through the hardest years of, year of our lives, we have, I mean, think about it. It's not just the pandemic. We've weathered one of the uh, most divisive elections in U.S. history. We have weathered cultural and racial tensions of all sorts. We've seen the acrimony and polarization of our culture continue to rise. And the Church of Jesus Christ has not entered into the midst of this as a non-anxious presence to bring calm into the chaos. It's as though the Church of Jesus has looked at the chaos in our culture and said, hold my beer. <laughs> The racial unrest that shakes the foundations of American society, the sexual scandals that appear to be endemic at all levels of our culture, allegations of corruption and abuse of power that have unmasked leaders in every field. The church has not been immune to any of that. And so we just have to be honest about where we are as we begin to regather we could probably go on, but the point is not to depress us. The point is simply this. If we're going to regather and rebuild, we've got to begin by seeing the place, the time, the culture in which we find ourselves. If we are going to be and become the embodied hospitality of Jesus for the glory of God and the good of our neighbors here in Boulder County, we have to begin with reality. Nehemiah, I kind of picture this as like there's a group of people sitting in an office and some messengers come in and they report they've been on this long journey. They come back from Jerusalem and, and Nehemiah kind of over his shoulder goes, oh, how's it going up there? <laughs> terrible. It's going terribly. The people of God are in exile. Many have scattered. We can't gather for worship. We don't even have walls. When we look around us, when we consider the circumstances, it's not going very well. That's where we have to start. Now, I know as soon as I begin by listing some of those statistics and just reminding you of things that we've endured in the last 18 months, in our heads, many of us are already formulating responses. Well, you know, pastor, churches aren't serving people well. Um, we live in this hostile culture that doesn't care about the things of God. So that's why it's so hard for us. Church leaders have abused their power. You don't understand. My friend who left, you don't know what happened to him here. And I just want to say, first of all, I hear you. I hear you. But I want to plead with you to please return to Nehemiah. Look at how Nehemiah responds. Verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I just want us to notice that Nehemiah's response, when he sees what's going on, and he hears that the people of God are in crisis, his response is not to assign blame. 
And the question that I think we need to think about is this. Is this passage descriptive or prescriptive? In other words, is, is this in the Bible because God wants us to just read this and think, that happened and then Nehemiah was really sad. That would be descriptive, right? Um, or is it prescriptive? When Nehemiah hears that God's people are in crisis, it breaks his heart. And it should break our hearts too. When we hear that the church of Christ is in exile and great trouble and shame, it should break our heart. If you see the world as it is, you have to start to ask at some point, so what? And I guess blaming and shaming and playing victim are real and they are options, but they're not the final option for those who are called to love. I want to suggest to you that when Nehemiah sees the state of God's people, his response is to take responsibility. To take responsibility. We are so used to hearing bad news about the brokenness of the world that we live in that there's a sense in which you have to develop a thick skin just to survive and kind of learn to say, I don't care about that. That's not my problem. Uh, I'm not worried about that. To assign blame, you know, the church isn't meeting my needs. We live in a secular culture. Of course, the, 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 the church is under fire. But Nehemiah takes responsibility. And if you think about who he is in the context of his life, that is remarkable. Because like I told you a minute ago, Jerusalem was ransacked in 586 B.C., It's now 445 B.C. It's been 141 years since Nehemiah's people were taken away from the city that he's now heartbroken over. Think back to where your people were 141 years ago in 1880. I am not emotionally invested in what was happening in rural Scandinavia in 1880. Like that, when I hear the plight of... That doesn't, you know, this is what my point is that this is not an emotionally driven response. Um, Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. His parents have never been to Jerusalem. His grandparents had probably never been to Jerusalem. His great grandparents probably left his children. He is not emotionally invested in this. He's got a cushy government job working for the king in Persia. Why would he care at all? Because God's people in every age are called to see the world as it really is and to respond with love by taking responsibility. And it's not because the problems are our fault. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. But talking about who's to blame and who's at fault is not really the point if we want to work towards something better. If you remember what I've already said about Abraham in Genesis 12. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I love you. I choose you. You are going to be my people. I'm going to bless you. And Abraham, your descendants, the people of God throughout all time, you are going to bless the world. Because of what you've seen, Abraham, because of what you've seen, Christians, because of what you've experienced, because of what you've received, you, therefore, are responsible to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Love compels us to take responsibility for the world that we find ourselves in. This is who we are. This is the story of God's people time and time again. I mean, think of just a couple of examples. Think of God coming to to Adam and Eve 
in the Garden of Eden, after they have rebelled against God and plunged the human race into sin. God comes and he covers their sin and shame. He clothes his wayward people. God takes responsibility for his people when we stray. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be arrested due to no fault of his own. And he prays, Father, take this cup from me if there's another way, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus sees and he loves, and so he takes responsibility for you and for me. Think of Jesus on the cross, crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then he says, it is finished. Everything has been done. The work that is required to reconcile you to God, it is finished. And that means that you and I can stop worrying about ourselves and begin to take responsibility for the problems of our world, of our friends, of our neighbors. Jesus took our sin and shame. He gives us his perfection. And that means we don't have to hide. We don't have to protect ourselves. We don't have to defend ourselves. And once you stop defending yourself, you've got all kinds of time to begin to care about other people's problems, to take responsibility for what we see. We live in a culture where avoiding responsibility is such a regular thing that we probably don't even recognize it for what it is anymore. Every customer service experience is like something bad happens and you call a company to have them explain why it's not their fault. (laughs) But because it's hard for us to even see this, I'm going to use an extreme example to illustrate the point. Adolf Eichmann. Adolf Eichmann was a member of the Nazi party. He was an SS officer who became primarily responsible in the 30s and 40s for, quote, the logistics involved in the mass deportation of Jews to ghettos and extermination camps across Eastern Europe. That sentence is a quote from Wikipedia that is almost criminal in its vagueness. He was the person responsible for the logistics of the murder of six million people. And one of the journalists, well, let me tell you how, how he got to this point. He, he um, fled at the end of World War II. And for 15 years, he was on the run until he was tracked down by Mossad 15 years later in 1960, hiding in Germany. Not in Germany. <laughs> hiding in Argentina. <laughs> and Mossad takes him to Jerusalem and puts him on trial. And a journalist who reported on his trial um, was struck by how ordinary a person he seemed to be. How ordinary his life had been. Surely the person responsible for such an atrocity would just seem like an animal, right? But a journalist wrote that Adolf Eichmann got up in the morning and went to the office. He obeyed the orders of his superiors. He didn't break the law. In his trial, Eichmann himself said this, With the killing of the Jews, I had nothing to do. I never killed a Jew or a non-Jew for that matter. I never killed any human being. I never gave an order directly to kill a Jew or a non-Jew. When asked how he could justify his role in the Holocaust, 
In the execution of six million people, Eichmann's response was, I was just doing my job. He never attended an execution. He never witnessed a gassing. He never shot anyone. He just led his staff and filed his paperwork on time. Eichmann was shocked when he was found guilty. (laughs) The judges had taken such interest in his motivation, they couldn't understand his rationale. They, and so he couldn't understand the verdict when they found him guilty of crimes against humanity because, like he said, I was just doing my job. He couldn't see that, seeing what he had seen, knowing what he knew, he was implicated in the results. He was responsible. But he thought he could just avoid, he could just do his job, do what he was told, and avoid responsibility. So like I said, that's an extreme example, and I'm not comparing you to Nazis, okay? (sighs) It's just to illustrate the point that it is possible to quote-unquote do everything right and still be very, very wrong. To see the world with love implies that we take responsibility because the God who sees us as we are takes responsibility for us and sends us into the world to take responsibility for the world with love. We shirk our responsibility in so many ways. When we say, you know, what's the best excuse today? I'm busy. We shirk our responsibility when we avoid discipling our children because we're too busy paying the bills. We avoid responsibility for our neighbors when we tell ourselves it would be too awkward to introduce ourselves again. We can't remember their names, much less invite them into our lives and into our homes. We avoid responsibility for our fellow believers over and over and over again. And let me simply say this. There's a way of... It's possible, I think, for us as a church to say, you're right, the church of Jesus is a mess and I'm so glad that we are not like those Baptists or those, you know, fill in the whatever term we want to use. And it's simply avoiding responsibility. The problem is not those other Christians. The point is this. God loves you. He has redeemed you. He removes your guilt. He takes responsibility for you in love, and he sends you and us corporately into the world to take responsibility for us. The question I think we have to ask is not, what's wrong with all those other Christians? The question we have to ask is, if not us, then who? Grace compels us to love and to love in action. Not just to love in theory, but to love in action. So what does that look like? Well, let's go back again to Nehemiah. Verse 4, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he continues in this beautiful prayer. If we see with love, we must take responsibility. If we take responsibility, we must act. And if we must act, then according to Nehemiah, we must begin with prayer. He begins not with what we have to do. He begins with who we are. And I think there's an important and profound lesson for us specifically as a church and and for the Christian church in general. The... When we see the world as it is and we 
are compelled by love to take responsibility for our place and the problems that we see. It's so tempting to do a planning session, put together a strategic plan, and then just get after it. And I know I'm new, and you you don't all know me that well. (laughs) That is like every impulse in my body is, is saying, like, let's get it done here, people. Nehemiah shows us that we have to begin, if we're, if we're going to do the work of Jesus in the world, we have to become more like Jesus first. Spiritual formation, discipleship is the first step. Like I said, that goes against every instinct in my body. About seven years ago, God called our family to plant a church in Orange County, California. And for the first two years or so, it was going really, really well. I had a great plan. We were working the plan, and the plan was working. Until one uh, night, a family who we loved, um, who I had hired one of the members of that family to work on our staff, told us that they were leaving the church. And they told us that they were leaving because they had lost confidence in my leadership. And that began (laughs) five awful months (laughs) where just every week or two, the same thing happened again and again. Everybody's leaving, and it's all my fault. And for a couple of months, I mean, I couldn't do anything. (laughs) I would come home from work early and go to bed, and it was in the midst of that time that all I could do was be silent in God's presence and, and try to pray and begin to feel during that time that when there was nothing else I could do, that God was enough. That God would sustain us, that he did sustain us. And it was during that time, you know, I'd been a pastor for 12 years maybe. It was during that time that I finally learned how to pray. Uh, this won't be obvious to you, but when Nehemiah says, I sat down and I mourned and I wept and I prayed for days. <laughs> you know, sometimes we like come home from Costco and I'm like, we've got bagels for days. <laughs> you know, it doesn't mean it metaphorically. It, it, chapter one begins in the month of Chislev. And then next week we're going to see in chapter two, it says in the month of Nisan. And I know you don't know what that means, but Chislev is like November, December. It's like Thanksgiving. And Nisan is when Passover happens, which is when Easter is, which means April. For four months. <laughs> and again, we're going to see this more, but his job is to sit next to the king. He has an idea. God is moving in his heart. He knows what he's supposed to do. And he doesn't say anything about it for four months. I didn't even know that was possible. <laughs> he prays. This is not a perfunctory, we're going to pray that God blesses the plans that we've already made. This isn't praying before a meal. This is, God, you're calling us to something great here. And so we need to spend great time in your presence. Nehemiah sees, he takes responsibility, and then he prays for four months. 
And I think what we should see is this, that if we have any hope of becoming the flourishing presence of Jesus for our friends and for our neighbors, that it begins by becoming people who are utterly dependent upon the presence of God. Planning cannot overcome the polarization of our culture. We cannot hope to be the presence of Jesus in in our world unless we become more like Jesus ourselves. The reality is that what won the ancient world over and over again, whether it's in the time of Nehemiah, in the first century AD after the resurrection of Jesus, what won the ancient world to Christ was this inward transformation led Christians to become the sorts of people who regularly do the sorts of things Jesus would do if he was in those same circumstances. If we don't know how to pray, let me, let me just say that. It sounds great, Pastor, but who's got time for that? And I don't even know how to pray if I wanted to. Um, I got an email last week from a friend of mine who is a um, pastor at Biola University, Kyle Strobel, who wrote a book called When Prayer Becomes Real, one of the best resources on prayer I've seen in a long time. He emailed me out of the blue and said, somebody wants me to send you 100 copies of my book. If um, you have people who want to read it and pray through it in groups. So if you're in a cohort, if you're a cohort leader and you want to learn how to pray, let me know. I've got 100 copies of a book on prayer that I would love to give you. The truth is that we pray when we know that we have great needs and we have no ability to meet those needs. We don't have the resources to meet the needs. That's, that's when prayer becomes real. Uh, we can pray before meals. We can, we can you know, learn techniques for prayer. But desperation is what ultimately causes us to pray. So again, I guess I would just ask you to look around. Uh, (laughs) We're meeting outside. There's less of us here than there was last time we were inside. A lot less. I mean, I don't want to go into all the doom and gloom, but it's going to get cold. It's going to be hard to meet here soon. We have great needs. The truth is that when we have great needs and we don't possess the resources to meet those needs, that's when we begin to pray. But like Bono said, the God we believe in isn't short on cash. God knows how to meet the needs of his people. I know many of us are tired. We've been through the ringer over and over again in the last year and a half. Let me just ask, is it possible that that's actually where God wants us? Maybe we're finally getting desperate enough to depend on him. To see our world and its brokenness, to see ourselves and the church in a state of desperation, to not shrink back, to move forward and say, yes, we're here, we're ready, we are responsible, but God, we need you. If you don't show up in our midst, we are hopeless. So let me leave you with uh, some good news. If you're thinking, that sounds great, but I have no idea how that's going to happen because I'm running on empty. I have nothing left in the tank. I'm exhausted. And now you're saying we need to do something different as we regather as a church than we've done in the past. And I don't know how that's going to happen. There's good news right at the end of this passage. Uh, Up until this point, if you think about it, we really don't know who Nehemiah is. We don't, why are we listening to this, to this guy writing these words? And then he finishes chapter one with this kind of cliffhanger. Now, I was cupbearer to the king. 
I was cupbearer to the king. We're going to talk more about what that means next week. But the cupbearer sits next to the king and eats the king's food, drinks the king's wine before the king does so that Nehemiah dies instead of the king. And what that means is that he spends all day long sitting next to the king. And so the cupbearer began as just a way to not let the king die. But the the cupbearer begins to function as almost like the prime minister. He has the king's ear. And what that means is this. Before the report comes back that the people of God were in great trouble and shame and the wall was in ruins, God was at work orchestrating events. God was putting Nehemiah into this position of influence. God was resourcing him in ways that he did not know he needed. And that doesn't mean that the work will be easier, that it will be accomplished without conflict or struggle. It simply means this, that God will accomplish through us the work that he is calling us to do. Friends, he sees you. He loves you. He takes responsibility for you. He is with you. In Christ, he has done everything for you. So the question for us is this. How will you respond? Will you join God in the work that he is doing? Because I truly believe that despite the winnowing that has taken place in the church throughout the Western Hemisphere in the last 18 months, that God is up to something. Will we join him? Will we see our place? Will we take responsibility? And will we become people who are dependent on him and become people who pray? Amen. So, if there are any questions, let's see if I got any texts. Okay. How can we build that sense of desperation when we feel self sufficient or apathetic? That's a great question. Um, I think we have, to, we have to start by acknowledging that that's a great question. And, and part of the, 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 the challenge that presents us uh, living in an affluent place is that we know how to meet most of our needs. I think that so much of what has been unmasked in the last 18 months is that the way we meet our material, the, the way we meet our needs with material goods is not sufficient, right? Um, did Zoom meet all of your relational needs? <laughs> I mean, uh, we've been we're being hunted down by a virus that we can't see. So, I think we have to be uh, just blur- brutally honest about <laughs> what 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 our needs really are. Are our needs just a little bit more? Are our needs just um, more time, a little bit more money in the bank? Or are our needs ultimately that um, we have been estranged from a God who loves us and has made himself present in Jesus? Like that, that, that's really what our need is. So God is meeting that need, and he is um, he's inviting us to join him in his work. And we don't have the human resources for that. I almost did this rant in our staff meeting, didn't I, about like, these are our needs, we should pray more, guys. Like, we have a lot of needs as a church. <laughs> we talked to a realtor about a building that's for sale for $3 million. He said, I'm assuming you don't have $3 million. We don't have $3 million, so. 
we need a place to meet. We, need, we have a lot of needs. So I think we have to start by being honest about what those are. I'd love to talk more about that. Um, that's the only question. So thanks. Okay, we're going to turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper. And um, the beauty of the Lord's Supper is that it's a physical, tangible reminder that God meets our needs. That when we are not enough and we don't have what we require, God gives us himself. It was on the night that he was betrayed. It wasn't when things were going really well. It was on the night that he was betrayed that Jesus took bread and he gave thanks for it and he broke it saying, this is my body that is broken for you, take and eat. And then after they'd eaten, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant poured out in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. In just a minute, I'm going to invite you to gather around these two tall black tables where uh, the elements will be served to you and you'll, you'll take uh, communion together in groups of about 10 or 15. Um, please, as we, uh, as we continue to sing, just get up um, on your own time and there will be a host there to serve you. But as you do so, remember that these are God's gifts for God's people. God knows exactly what we need. He knows better than we do what we need. And because he knows what we need and he promises to meet those needs, we can open our eyes and we can be honest about what's going on in our lives, what's going on in our world, and we can bring those to him. This meal is a feast. It is a celebration. Jesus said, as often as you celebrate uh, this meal, you proclaim my death until I come again. So I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite you to come and eat joyfully, feasting on the goodness of God for us. Let's pray together. God, would you meet with us? We are needy people. We spend so much time trying to convince ourselves that we are not needy. Would you help us to just pause to be honest? The more we know our need, the more we know your grace, God, because you are more than sufficient for us. So as we eat together, as we celebrate, would you help us to do so smiling, gladly knowing that Jesus is enough. We pray this in his name. Amen.